is clearly a more complex business to run. And then you're running a restaurant, only it's three meals a day forever. So making it cost-effective and yet high quality is a real challenge in itself. Best Ever listeners, we have launched bestevercauses.com. That's bestevercauses.com. We profile a nonprofit or cause that is near and dear to our heart, get the word out about their cause, and also donate money towards their cause. If you'd like to, one, learn more about the causes that we're profiling, we do one a month, then go to bestevercauses.com. And if you want to suggest a cause that we profile that is near and dear to your heart, then go to bestevercauses.com and there's a little form at the bottom of the page where you can submit one and we'll check it out. Best ever listeners, how you doing? Welcome to the best real estate investing advice ever show. I'm Joe Fairless. This is the world's longest running daily real estate investing podcast. We only talk about the best advice ever. We don't get into any of that fluffy stuff with us today. Doug, full away. How you doing, Doug? I'm doing well. Thank you. Well, I'm glad to hear that a little bit about Doug. He is the president of 14 plus. He specializes in investing in and growing the senior living market. He's been in the senior living space since 2002. He's the author of the book, Investing in Senior Living. Notice a trend here. He's based in Portland, Oregon. And with that being said, Doug, you want to give the best ever listeners a little bit more about your background and your current focus? Certainly. I'm an Oregonian by birth. I've lived in Costa Rica, the Netherlands, and Singapore in my career. Early in my career, I spent most of it in the high-tech world and electronic design automation. But in 2002, I found somebody asking me to help turn around a company in assisted living. And at that point, I didn't know what it was. But I grew to love it, and we grew that company to be the largest provider of software to the senior living communities of assisted living in the United States with thousands of sites as our customers. I ran the software business and stayed in that until about 2016 when a large company came along and offered us lots of money and made my investors very happy. I stayed with that company for a number of years, but several years ago, I realized I was making significantly better money by investing in senior living. So that's why my focus is on this space. You helped turn around the company. Yeah, it wasn't and... my company. I wasn't okay. the founder. The founder had kind of given up. He was going to close the company, and I worked with him, and we turned it around, and it was a struggle for a number of years, but we grew to have literally thousands of sites using our software for assisted living management. Wow. And you said your investors. So did you recruit investors to invest in that company? Yes, I did recruit okay. investors. I had to bring in more money, and of course, you want to keep your promises to them. Yes, that is important. That's for sure. Okay, so you... We're in the software slash technology space within senior living, and we'll get to your investing here in a second, but why was it that your company was sought after from the yeah, senior was, living communities? You know, partly just being in the right place at the right time. When we approached an operator, we would ask a very simple question. Would you like to increase your revenue by $100 a resident per month? And of course, they all say yes. And of course, they say how much? And we'd say, well... Five or six dollars per resident. And they go, well, that can't be. Well, in fact, it was because the business had been run in kind of an informal way. Martha, who was 87 years old, asked you to deliver the paper in the morning. Of course you want to take care of her. You're a good person. But pretty soon you're delivering 100 newspapers in the morning and putting in real labor and not getting paid for it. 
So people were giving away services, and by putting our software in place, it could easily keep track of all the services, charge appropriately. So remarkably, resident satisfaction would go up because you delivered what you said you would do. You kept your promises. And at the same time, they would pay you more money. So it was a good thing for everybody. Just educate me on some tasks that were sporadically monetized, but then with your software, they were fully monetized. So a really simple one is bathing. Some people just don't need any help at all. Some people just need a reminder. Some people actually need help because they have a very difficult time getting undressed and taking care of it. So there's varying degrees of need there. And the informal way of doing that was you just put bathing assistance on the list. And the caregiver didn't know what they had to do or not do till they talked to the person. So the person who took 30 minutes to help with bathing was very different from the person who took five minutes. And you could then be more granular and specific about the charges. This person needs five minutes. This person needs 30 minutes. This person needs 45 minutes. And then that showed up on their bill. And that's what made the difference. It was so easy to do that people would do it. And the residents didn't object. They were getting the service. What's a couple other services? Another service would be help with medication management. It's actually the biggest consumer of labor in assisted living. People have 11, 12, 14 medications they have to take, typically three or four times during the day. And many of these people are beginning to have issues with memory, so they forget and they get confused. So that's one of the things that takes a lot of time and obviously has to be done very carefully so that people get the right medications at the right time. Another service is something that sounds really simple, but it actually takes a lot of time. Help with ambulation. If you have troubles getting up out of a chair, and walking to the dining room, it's best if somebody's there to accompany you. So there are many people who don't need any of these assistance taken care of, but there are others who need a lots of things, and it varies person to person, and it changes over time. You mentioned assisted living, and we've also said senior living. Are they different? They are. Let me start at the top. If we look at all the kinds of care for anybody who's older, there is skilled nursing. There is memory care, there's assisted living, and there's independent living. Independent living is kind of like a college dorm for old folks. It has a dining room, but they take care of themselves completely. That's considered part of senior living or senior housing. Assisted living means they need more help, the things we just talked about. And memory care means they need even more help. So senior housing or senior living refers to everything except skilled nursing. Skilled nursing is a very different business, highly regulated. It's more regulated than the nuclear industry. There are more pages of things you have to do per the federal rules, and it's entirely paid for, really, by government programs, mostly Medicare. Whereas senior housing and senior living have no reimbursement, really, for the most part. It's 92% private pay. I've seen memory care, assisted living, and independent living communities, but I don't think I've ever seen a sign that I've passed by that said skilled nursing community. Yeah, it'll just be called a nursing community, or it will have a name. It's a rehabilitation center. Okay. But the key there is it's paid for by a government insurance program. Got it. Okay. Well, that's good context, and there's some helpful pieces of information for anyone interested in investing in assisted living. What is your focus now as an investor? 
Really, my focus is 100% on helping great operators raise the equity they need to grow their business. Operators are very good at doing those things, but they are so busy because they have so many things to manage that they aren't necessarily great at raising the money they need to grow their business. So that's where I focus my time is finding them the equity. They typically can find the loan they need pretty readily because there are lots of sources, but equity is always a difficult thing for them to find. When you say great operators raise equity, are you referring to the assisted living and senior living? Yeah, I'm referring to the operator of the property and all the services that go into doing that. So for example, let me just give you a list of kinds of things an operator has to worry about. They have a bunch of regulations and there are different rules in each state. They have to comply with those. Things like the water temperature coming out of the tap in the bathtub cannot exceed a certain temperature. It must be more than and less than. They have to deliver all those care services. A typical building will have three to 5,000 individual services delivered every week in the building. That's a lot of stuff to keep track of. They've got to make it as much like home as possible. That means there are going to be fun things to do. There needs to be activities. They can't afford to pay the staff $20 an hour, so they have a real issue with staff turnover because do they pay minimum wage? Yes. Often $12, $13, $14 an hour is pretty common, but that means they're competing with lots of other entry-level jobs out there, so controlling staff turnover is hard. Making sure they don't give away services that I talked about earlier. That's a big issue. In this business, and let me contrast this with running an apartment, a multifamily investment. In a multifamily investment, if you have 100 residents, you probably have three or four employees. In senior living, if you have 100 units, you're going to have 55 employees. It's clearly a more complex business to run. And then you're running a restaurant, only it's three meals a day forever. So making it cost-effective and yet high quality is a real challenge in itself. And just like the multifamily business, they've got to maintain the building, the asset. So they have all those things to do, and then you say, oh, by the way, go raise some more money for the next property. That's a big time sink for them. So that's where I fit in is trying to help them with that problem. And where does your network and investors come from? There are family offices. There are high net worth individuals. And I have a fairly long list of individuals who can put in, for example, a $50,000 investment. So I have a whole range of those. I am not big enough and intentionally don't go after state pension funds or endowments or those kinds of things. They've asked, but they look at me as, oh, you're too small. We can't do that. Although many of them are asking and I'm doing fine with the list that I have. How'd you build the relationships with the family offices? Difficult. <laughs> Took a long time. It started with somebody I'd known who I didn't really realize was in a family office. He was an accounting kind of guy. You know, he had a, an MBA from Cornell. I'd known him for many years and used to go skiing with him. And then I found out he was actually the president of a multifamily office that supported three families. So I got to know him and showed him some investments and helped him succeed. And then he introduced me to some other people. I've also made it a point to go to family office events just to be there, be known. And then I have a partner who helps me who used to be a venture capital world. He was at Norwest Ventures, and he has a long Rolodex of high net worth, high tech people that were his clients who trust him because he helped them make lots and lots of money. So those are really the two major sources. 
How many projects have you partnered on with operators? In the last year, I have helped raise money for eight projects successfully. Wow. I look at a lot of them. In the last 30 months, I've looked at $1.6 billion of potential. There's clearly been $500 million of that that I wouldn't go near because the numbers didn't make sense. They had labor costs at 22% of revenue. Well, the industry norm is someplace in the 40 to 55% range, so they just didn't work. But I see lots of things. I'm very picky about which ones I help with because the magic ingredient in senior living is really the operator. You can have the same building in the same location, either making great returns for the investor or being a disaster, all based upon the capability of the operator. I don't go look for projects. I look for operators. And we'll dig into that real quick. The eight projects over the last 12 months, how much total equity was that? They averaged five million each, so it came to forty-two million. Wow, that's a whole lot of buckaroos. Well, actually, in this space, I'm a little tiny player. They have BlackRock with its billion-dollar-plus funds on a regular basis. They have Goldman Sachs in this space paying attention. There are some very large private equity players. The amount I'm raising is actually considered very, very small. You said you wouldn't go near a lot of them that you looked at. You mentioned one thing, the labor, where maybe they have it 22% of revenue with industry norms around 45%. What are a couple other things that you have noticed that made you turn the other direction? There is a problem that exists, I'm sure, across all kinds of real estate, but in the senior living space, there can be a local market where you got to understand what the real supply and demand look like and what they're going to look like two years from now. So when I go in and see a pro forma and a nice set of numbers and a good market study, and then I quickly go look at the Census Bureau data, and I see that the number for those over 75 is at a certain level, and I look at the available supply, and I see that they're already meeting the demand, it makes me really wonder about why somebody thinks they can put somebody new in. Mm -hmm. They're going to have to have a significantly better product in order to attract people away from their existing property that they're living in. And that just seems like a high-risk proposition. On the other hand, if somebody will look at the data for a proposed community or a community to be acquired and look at the demand within three miles, five miles, within a 20-minute drive to be specific, You often find that in a market that's supposedly overbuilt, there might still be a great opportunity. So that's one of the big things I look for is the supply and demand for the very specific location and the product being offered. And often they hire somebody to do the market study that's not really an expert at senior living. Somebody is moving out of doing multifamily into senior living, and they use the same people to do the market study. There's some great firms out there that are absolutely good at doing it, and it's not that expensive to get it right. What is a good firm that would be great at that type of market study? So there's a firm called IRA that does studies all across the country, and they absolutely understand the senior living market. They understand all kinds of real estate markets, actually. And because of it, their data is very thorough and very well thought out. So when I see a study from them, I usually can't find any holes. It's almost like, oh, they wrote it. It's exactly right. I do one other thing, which is so simple that any investor can do, but it often tells me a lot. I simply go to Google Maps, put in the location, and type in the word assisted living, and I do it again for 
senior living, and I see what's in the area. And then I build my own list of competitors and compare it with what I'm being told in the offering memorandum. More often than not, I find that they haven't really discovered everybody. Mm. That, yeah, that's that... always a red flag for me, which is, okay, why don't you know about this competitor? <laughs> yeah. I would think that'd be a major red flag. Yeah, that... sometimes, it, quite frankly, it's difficult because the terminology varies. There are these things called residential care facilities. Well, what's that? It's really an assisted living. And under the law in some states, for example, here in Oregon, there's both assisted and residential and there's some slight differences in the size of the rooms. And I mean, from a consumer point of view, there's really not much difference. Do you know what IRA stands for with that market study group? Yeah, you know, I have to, I have to look and I don't remember from the, off the top of my head. Okay. No It'll come back to me here. Because I tried to Google it after you said that and I couldn't figure it out. No biggie. So the supply and demand, I want to ask a couple follow-up questions on that where you look at the Census Bureau data for people over the age of 75 within a certain area. So that gives you the potential demand. Then what about supply? What resource do you look at in order to identify the supply? There are several places I go look in the, quote, public that don't cost me any money. If you go to caring.com, you can find that they're doing reviews of sites, but they almost always describe the number of units available there. Okay. So it takes me a little time. Now, if I have a market where I'm doing lots and lots of investigation, for example, South Florida, I can go to the National Investment Center, NIC.org, and I can pay for a one-year subscription to their data for a market, which is all of Florida. Yeah, it does cost $2,000 to do that, but I see every building. I see not only what kind of units they offer, but I can see what their asking prices are. I can see what the occupancy is for an area. I can't see for one building, but I can choose an area that's a three-mile circle or a zip code. And as long as there's more than three competitors in that space, and there almost always are, then I get to see what the total occupancy is. So if I see total occupancy at 95%, that's a usually a really good indicator that there's plenty of room for somebody else to be in there because most of the buildings are close to full. So that's another place I go. And then the final thing I can do is, this is a friendly industry. If you call the association in the state and make friends with somebody and talk to them, you can usually find out lots of things that aren't necessarily published, and I do that. Call what association in the state? Well, for example, the Assisted Living Association. There's one in every state, or sometimes there are healthcare associations There are two national organizations, one called Argentum, which really focuses on assisted living, independent living, and memory care. And there's another one called the American Healthcare Association, which primarily focuses on skilled nursing, but they have a group called the National Center for Assisted Living. So you really can go to two sources and get a lot of information pretty quickly. You mentioned that the magic is in the operator. You talked about some things that would disqualify the operator. What are some specific things that would qualify him or her? I want to see that the CEO has been in the business for at least 10 years. If it's less, I'm a little suspicious. I want to see that the CEO has direct reports, somebody who's really the head nurse, the titles vary, but really a head nurse, somebody who worries about the day-to-day operations and a good chief financial officer. So I want to see the right staff. 
The next thing I want to see is, let's call it the hospitality factor. After all, we're trying to make sure that there's a great home for somebody. So it's not like I can measure a ratio or a number, but I go visit people, I see them, and I just see if they're gracious to the people around them all the time. Do they go out of the way without being asked to talk about creating a nice place for their employees and for their residents? It's about making a lifestyle and a home for people. So I really want to see that. It's a little hard to measure, but it's important. And it doesn't take that much time to figure it out. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I imagine the 10 or greater amount of years as CEO, that's easy to disqualify or qualify people right out of the gate. And then direct reports, I would think and I don't know the business, so correct me if I'm wrong, but I would think that that would just be a plug-and-play model where every CEO, if they've been in the business for 10 years, they would have that staff structure. So does that vary at all? It does. Let me give you an example. There was an operator that I knew who had over $2 billion of multifamily buildings under management. Very experienced, been in that for 30-plus years. And he was going to start off in the senior living world, and he didn't have a single person on his staff who knew anything about senior living. He thought it was just going to be the same. <laughs> well, he's a great CEO, but I'm sorry, he needed a vice president who'd been in the business at least 10 years. Mm -hmm. Now, he did eventually go get two people who had that kind of experience, put them in, and he's now grown to building number, I think it's 15 or 16, and his returns for his investors are in the... 23, 24% range. If you get the right people in place and you do this the right way, it's a great place to invest. Where do those returns come from? Is it on the sale or is it making that 20 plus percent cash on cash return during operations? It's really on the sale. Now, the cash on cash, certainly you can acquire something that might have a 5% cash on cash in the first year. But if you run it properly, you're going to grow it to be the high teens pretty readily. It might take three or four years to do that. But in the industry, I help lots of operators find a building that's poorly run, that's in the bottom 25% of performance, and just over the next three years, move it up to median, and that doubles the value for the investor. They refinance it at five years, mm -hmm. and that's what creates it. So it doesn't necessarily have to be a sale. It could be just a refinance. Based on your experience in this industry, what is your best advice ever to real estate investors? Go find a great operator. If you do that, good things will happen. How do you come across operators in senior living? There are a couple things you can do. Find the local association, the California Assisted Living Association, for example, and go to their conferences and hang out and talk to people, and you will figure out pretty quickly who the top nine or ten operators are and go introduce yourself and just say, I'd like to invest. We're going to do the lightning round. You ready for the best ever lightning round? I'm ready. All right, let's do it. First, a quick word from our best ever partners. Best ever listeners, we have launched bestevercauses.com. That's bestevercauses.com. We profile a nonprofit or a cause that is near and dear to our heart, get the word out about their cause, and also donate money towards their cause. If you'd like to, one, learn more about the causes that we're profiling, we do one a month, then go to bestevercauses.com. And if you want to suggest a cause that we profile that is near and dear to your heart, then go to bestevercauses.com. And there's a little form 
at the bottom of the page where you can submit one and we'll check it out. Feeling lost on your roadmap to wealth? Tune in to the newly launched REI Foundation podcast where hosts Jason and Peely give you all the steps and missteps towards achieving your investing dreams. Featuring interviews from top industry professionals, make sure you listen and subscribe to REI Foundation podcast at com. Best ever book you've recently read? Recently? Oh, well, the best ever book I read is Management by Peter Drucker. And I reread it about a year ago, even though it's an old book. It's an amazingly interesting book. Best ever deal you've done? I bought a small assisted living community in a small town for $5.2 million, and we sold it four years later for ten. How much did you all put into that property and the operations? $1 million. What's a mistake you've made on a transaction? I got together with a group of people to buy a property. We all knew each other. It all seemed friendly. And three years in, I realized I didn't understand the investment motive that each of the investors have. Some wanted a long-term dividend, and some wanted to flip it and make money. And that controversy created a horrible dynamic. How would you resolve it? We talked it out, and it took several years to get everybody to agree it was just time to sell. So I parted company, essentially. Best ever way you like to give back? I have built a business game, a Monte Carlo simulator of a poorly run assisted living community that's used now at several universities, and I'm building a new generation of that. It's really helps you run a business on paper, so to speak, with a computer to learn the ins and outs of the business. How can we see that or check it out? Well, that you can't see. It's not widely distributed. We're working on when we can distribute to the world because I've delivered in person to these universities. I go and do it. Okay, cool. That's so we're going to put it on the web. We're working on that generation next. Best ever way the best ever listeners can get in touch with you and learn more about what you got going on. 14plus.com. Just spell out the two words, 14 and plus, together, no dots, no spaces. They can download the book for free. Oh, cool. And I got to ask you about the name. It seems ironic to me since you're in senior living, but your company's 14 plus. What well, the... there's a, see, I, put, I chose that name because everybody asks. <laughs> and the real answer is if you look at increase, the National Council of Real Estate Investment Fiduciaries, there's a mouthful. Over a five-year time frame, senior living has produced the highest return of any type of real estate property at 14.7%. So 14 plus means I want to do better than average. So for example, multifamily did 8.3% in that same time period. And this has been true for the last 15 years. It has not changed. It is the best place for a real estate investor to put their money. And people don't know that. Well, Doug, thank you so much for being on the show. Really educational and also very practical for us to take action on after this interview, looking at deals, the way that uh, you look at them. You, you talked about ways you disqualify deals. If the labor costs are 22% of revenue, but the industry norms are on 45% or something like that, looking at the supply and demand, looking at other competition within the footprint, a 20-minute drive, and making sure that the operator has that accounted for, raising money for projects, and how to find good operators, and then some characteristics of a good operator. So lots of great stuff. Thank you so much for being on the show. Hope you have a best ever day, and we'll talk to you soon. 
So thank you very much. Feeling lost on your roadmap to wealth? Tune in to the newly launched REI Foundation podcast where hosts Jason and Peely give you all the steps and missteps towards achieving your investing dreams. Featuring interviews from top industry professionals, make sure you listen and subscribe to REI Foundation podcast at com.